Hi, everyone, and welcome to Astavision. In this episode, I'm so pleased to be joined by Nicholas Davies, author and journalist. And you might also say that uh, Nicholas is a hardened campaign campaigner for peace. And I also know Nicholas as well because he's a he's a family friend. Um, but I'm just just really lucky to be able to get him on Astavision. So welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me, Asta. It's nice to be on with you. Yeah, you too. Tell me, you you you've got two books out. Um, one of <laughs> is Blood on Our Hands, and the other, soon to be released in the UK, is uh, the War in Ukraine: uh, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. Yeah, I've got them both here. Actually, there's there's Blood on Our Hands. Of Excellent. Backwards on the screen, but <laughs> there we are. And, and this is and this is the new one. War Excellent. And, so uh, obviously, yeah. it's 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 been a hot topic, Ukraine, at the moment, um, with it, it it basically affecting the whole of the world. And I was lucky enough um, to get an early copy of your book, and I've read it, and it's it's definitely an eye opener. Um, but just start by telling me giving my viewers and listeners a little bit of context to your background uh, because you just didn't wake up one day and think I'm going to write books about war. Right. Well, um, I actually, (laughs) there's one thing I hope you got wrong in, in when you introduced me, because you said I'm a hardened campaigner for peace. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that is not the case because yeah, it's it's tough material to to deal with and write about and uh and sort of uh you know often seems like a thankless uh task to be to be trying to work for peace um the you know the the forces pushing war in this world war and militarism and the the war industries the weapons manufacturers and all of it are very powerful and um i think uh p you know i i but i've been doing i've been doing this all my life really i mean since you know i mean i grew up in a navy family my dad was a doctor in the royal navy and when i got to the age of about 15 i i started thinking seriously about about that i i, I talked to my dad about it and and, um, you know, as a doctor in the Navy, there was a contradiction there. On the one hand, you know, he's, he's sworn to be, um, you know. Uh, Healing people. You know, yeah, the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. Yeah. And, and, you know, working to save people's lives um, and yet sailing around on ships with six-inch guns, you know, obviously dedicated uh, not to saving people's lives, but to um, killing people um, and destroying things. Um, and um, so, um, that, that must have been that must have been tricky, mustn't it? Because there's on one hand, you know, there's there's two very different sides to a story. There isn't there with your with your dad on the navy ships, and you know, you seeing a contrasted life to that. Yeah, well, and and 
it's interesting, I think, in light of where we are in the world today, um, how he explained that to me. Because what, what he said was that, well, I think the way, the best way we can avoid war is by actually having a strong military, because that will deter anyone from attacking us. And I have thought about that many times in the last 20 years and, and even talked to him about it. He, he only died in 2008 and, and we'd had, you know, I'd been sending him my articles and we had many discussions about the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, and um, so it was clear to me that his rationale, <laughs> I'm afraid, broke down in these situations where nobody was attacking the United States or the United Kingdom. And in fact, we were the ones attacking other countries, uh, notably Iraq and Afghanistan. But of course, it's gone on since then to Libya, Syria, uh, Yemen, uh, Somalia, um, and so on. And of course, there was there was also Yugoslavia, the completely illegal NATO attack uh, <clears throat> to carve out a sort of NATO protectorate in Kosovo from from the remains of, of Yugoslavia in 1999. Um, so so yes, I'm afraid I have to say my dad's my dad's rationale for you know to have a strong defense really breaks down when you are the aggressor it was it was iraq and afghanistan that that, that needed to have a strong defense at that point if they were to to not be invaded and occupied um by foreign foreign military forces and and so was was that you was that your dad's narrative right to the end then um actually um on one of my last visits to England, um, I don't know what it was by then, maybe 2006 before he died in 2008. Um, at a certain point, he, he, you know, I was there with um, Debbie and my wife and, yeah. and, um, and my dad sort of gathered us very formally in the living room and sort of made an announcement. Uh, and he said, in this family, we support the armed forces, but we do not support the war in Iraq. Wow. And, um, you know, and it had clearly been um, something he and my mom had, had, had talked about and something he had really wrestled with, you know, because as, wow. um, as veterans, as, as um, people you know, committed to the military and, uh, you know, and my mother was actually a code breaker during World War II. She worked at Bletchley Park. And and, um, so, yes, they were both very, very, and my mom still is very pro-military. And um, so this was obviously something they really wrestled with. And um, maybe even I'm not sure. Maybe still disagreed about it at that point. But um, but no, my I mean, my dad was a, you know, I, I'd say a relatively open-minded person, and um, he did come around to that position. Um, 
Do you think the, the I military... Totally, I didn't totally push him on Afghanistan at that point. But, <laughs> but you know, for him to come to that that position was, was you know, was certainly, uh, you know, heartwarming to me. Yeah, no, absolutely. That is definitely a, a, a flip round, isn't it? Um, and I think, do, do you think the military stance from people like that and maybe people of that generation comes from them wanting to feel a sense of security. So them almost saying, well, you know, we've got a great military might behind us and it's all wonderful and they're, they're, it's great. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Like, are they coming from a sense of being wanted to be secure, do you think? Well, I, I think it is partly a generational thing, quite honestly. Um, you know, obviously in World War II, uh, from their perspective, by standing strong and, and you know, def- fighting uh, the Nazis, the Germans um, and, and the Japanese, um, you know, and of course, eventually winning the war. It's, it's always a little easier if you've won a war than if you lost it to, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to think that absolutely. it was a good thing or to think that you, you did the right thing. And um, so, I, and I think that has colored the way their whole generation has seen everything since and um so um i always remember my um grandmother saying before she she passed away that um because she was a a nurse in the in the war Mm. and you never really heard her talking about the bad things that happened and the only conclusion i can draw from that is that they were that bad that she couldn't really bring herself to talk about it. And it, it it worries me now because if we fast forward to 2022, which we're in now, nearly 2023, that are really, are things really improving or are they in actual fact starting to ramp up again? Well, I, I'd say they've been ramping up for a long time now. Um, since you know since september the 11th and you know the us invasion of afghanistan and then iraq um there has been a massive uh arms and military build up on the western side um you know the the, the us now spends as much on its military as the next 12 countries in the world combined half of whom or most of whom I think are, are in fact US allies. Over the last 20 years, um, the third largest uh, military spender in the world, um, you know, the, the, the country with the largest military budget over those 20 years, is the UK, the United Kingdom, mm-hmm. third only to the US and China. And so, um, you know, the, those wars became a pretext for a huge military buildup. Um, and in fact, um, analysts have looked at that military buildup. In, in 2010, um, uh, a guy called Carl Conetta published a study uh, of, you know, what actually, you know, what the, what the military buildup was really all about. And he found that only... 52% of all that extra spending had anything to do with the wars 
in Iraq or Afghanistan. So we have, you know, we have this thing we call here in the US, the military industrial complex. We were warned about it categorically, strongly in his farewell speech by President Eisenhower in 1961, talking about the unwarranted influence of the military industrial complex. We, We look at all these corporate interests, the banks, the big pharma, uh, big agriculture. But really, I I mean, I'm afraid to say that um, really perhaps the most entrenched and powerful of them all is the military industrial complex, in part because it's not it's not just the arms industry, as as Eisenhower said, it's the conjunction of of a, a huge military with this huge huge arms industry. And so, um, in fact, what he wanted to call it, and he was talked out of this by by his aides, he wanted to call it the military industrial congressional complex, because it's really a sort of, you know, it's a stool with three legs, because who provides the money for all that? It is Congress that year after year votes these huge amounts of money to spend on new weapons and bases all over the world. The U.S. has about 800 military bases in other countries. And I I mean, really, uh, you know, I, I spent... The first part of my life in the last outposts of the British Empire and the tail end, the the fading British Empire. You know, I, I was born in Sri Lanka. I lived in Hong Kong. I lived in Gibraltar. I lived in Malta, different bases in England and Scotland. And and um, was that was that when you were traveling around with your dad? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And um and but you know just through my <laughs> through my childhood um uh i mean the the those those overseas postings were mostly in the you know early very early part of my life because as my mom says um you know every time we left one of these bases they closed it down <laughs> we were sort of the last the ones leaving and sort of you know well lock the door behind you and you know that's it um and so um so i have gone from you know growing up and observing as a child the the end of the british empire to uh as an adult watching what uh, i really hope will be the end of the american empire yeah because um, you 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 live in america don't you? you live in miami I live in Miami, exactly. You, you must. Um, I mean, really, you're you're in, you're in it, aren't you? There, you, you can see what's what's going on, and where 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 do you think? You know, the you, the book aside, because I want people to read that and absorb that themselves, and I want them to 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 buy it. But I want I want you to tell me where where is this all rooted from, because. When we were born, we weren't born as fighting animals. We weren't born as, you know, we weren't born with weapons in our hands. We were born as loving human beings that want peace. Yeah, and we still are. Every child comes into the world that way, absolutely. Um 
But, um, you know, we talked about World War Two and its influence on, uh, you know, my parents' generation and your, your grandparents. Um, and um, actually, part of my influence, I think, comes from the generation before that, um, because my... My grandmother and her sister, uh, Stella, who I was very close with, you know, I was I was at boarding school um, uh, from the age of eight. My parents were up in Scotland and I, I was at boarding school in Oxford. And um, I, you know, my grandma used to come and take me out on the weekends and very often her sister Stella, who was a social worker in the East End of London, would, would be there also visiting for the weekend. And um, they they lost their much younger brother, their baby brother, on the first day of the Somme in wow. 2016. He, uh, Robin, Robin Masterman, had survived. he'd survived Gallipoli, sent out there as a second lieutenant at the age of 17. Um, he was able to go straight in as an officer because he had uh, he'd been at, at Harrow School and done military training there, um, as I did at, at Sherborne in the, the 1960s and early 70s. Um, and um, so, and after that, after that, my aunt Stella. Um, joined up as an ambulance driver on the Western Front. And I, I mean, I've, I've, I've studied it a bit and, you know, read novels about it and seen TV shows and things. You know, I can only, I, I really can't imagine what, what horrors she witnessed, you know, going up to the front and picking up ambulance loads of, of shattered, shattered, uh, British troops to bring them back to the field hospitals. And, and um, after that, actually, she was a fireman in the East End during the Blitz. Um, you know, like your grandma, who I know was at Guy's Hospital. Yeah. Um, likewise, you know, dealing with the people who've been who bombed out of their houses. And, wow. you know, and so, so my. Um, you know, my my grandmother and my aunt Stella, they were the first people really who told me, you know, because I, I grew up playing soldiers, you know, <laughs> as we did, you know, reading comics and books about, you know, where the heroes were the were the, the soldiers, the troops, the ones who won the Victoria Cross, and you know, and um yeah. and they would see me <laughs> I learned not to play soldiers around them. <laughs> they were yeah. they i remember I, re, I remember um uh my grandmother saying to me she said you know you, you know war is not a game war war is a terrible thing and um so yes yeah, so i had that influence but but um so uh, what, what 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 do you think when you i don't know get up in the morning you switch the news on again like myself, and you see uh, more and more money. Money that obviously exists, but your normal 
you know, Joe Bloggs is is struggling with money. You know, they don't see it. Uh, money that is filed constantly into this, into this, you know, this, yeah. I call it, a, I call it a business. You know, yeah. what, what, what do you think about that? Because when yes. I look at it, I'm just like, how can I be sat here as a person with a disability, kind of worried about my future and where my care will come from? And then on the other hand, these people are lobbing missiles at each other that costs God knows how much. Yes, it's it, it's the business it's the business of war, and um, and really, I mean, I, I think we should have learned actually from because <laughs> I I mean, even as I was growing up after World War Two, you know, we forced Germany and Japan to adopt essentially pacifist constitutions to not rebuild their arms industries. So all the all the genius and the the, the best brains, while, while, while our best brains and our resources were being poured into you know the Cold War and developing the most advanced, most most deadly weapons for the next 45 years. What was happening in Germany and Japan within within about 10 years after the war, certainly within 15, 20 years after the war, they were producing the best cars in the world, the best consumer electronics in the world. Um, you know, probably Germany first and then followed by, by Japan. And, and that their civilian economies were... Um, you know, they, they, they cleaned our clock in terms of the, the you know, those industries and the, the, the civilian peacetime industries that they developed. And as far as, as far so, as, so, I, mean, but my, I mean, my question is, did, did we learn nothing from that? You know, um, and I don't think we and, did. And so when the Cold War ended, it was hailed. It was hailed. We, you know, in the U.S., we we, we talked about a peace dividend. Um, the Senate Budget Committee had a meeting, hearing from from um, you know senior Defense Department officials saying that the the military budget could be cut in half within ten years, and that this would be the the golden age of of investing in America and. And, and social spending, you know, what you're talking about, the, for, 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 you know, the needs that you have a, a, as a disabled person. And, and, um, and, and so many, I mean, we have, we have extreme poverty in the United States. It's the, it's, it's the most, you know, unequal country. We have the, the most billionaires, and yet we, we, we have massive poverty, the wealth of the country is owned by a, a small number at the top. And while at least half of Americans are literally living paycheck to paycheck with no savings, no, no benefits from, you know, a soaring stock market or any of that. And, um, and, and, and so, but we, so what happened to that peace dividend? I mean, this is sort of the crux of, of how we ended up where we are. Um, and in the course of the 1990s, essentially, the, 
the military industrial complex, all those, those powerful interests that had that vested interest in maintaining, you know, an expensive, huge military establishment. Um, even though they, they, their enemy had, had, had completely dissolved. They had no, there was really no, no threat anymore. Um, but um, the, the, this, this, this group came together called the, the Neoconservatives, and they came together around an organization called the Project for a New American Century. And they're essentially... You know, their their argument was that, you know, America in the wake of World War Two had had its 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 age of you know maximum prosperity and 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 had become the you know dominant power of the whole world and 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 so the the, the key to maintaining that for another American century was you know lay in its military and its weapons and 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 that it needed to to use them um you know they they, they would they were say there. preventively i would say aggressively um you know to to maintain american power in the world so and, do you think do you think the heart of it come do you think well not i heart is probably the wrong word but do you do you think it stems from america then Yes, I, I, absolutely. Because the, I mean, where <laughs> you know, the, the, I mean that, and and in fact, what happened as America then, um, uh, you know, they and they, they, you know, after September the eleventh, this this absolutely instant military response to attack uh, Afghanistan, and that was not, it did not have to be that way. Um, there's a, a guy um, who wrote the, the preface to my book he, my, on, on Iraq. His name is Ben Ferenc. He's the last surviving prosecutor from the Nuremberg War Crimes Trials. He prosecuted. Uh, well, he was the prosecutor of what was called at the time the greatest murder trial in history, the, the, the trial of the SS generals and officers who were responsible for going into, following the troops into Eastern Europe and massacring communists, Jews, gypsies, undesirables, anyone who would be a problem for the German occupation of those countries. Mm -hmm. And and so the the defendants at the trial he prosecuted were charged with altogether murdering uh, about a million million innocent civilians. Yeah. Uh, you know, and of course, we know, we all know about uh, Auschwitz and the, uh, yeah. uh, you know, the, the concentration camps where that actually became industrialized. Um, but he, I heard him speaking on the radio literally a week after the, September the 11th. It was really probably the only voice I heard on, on, in the media uh, in America saying, it, it is wrong to punish people who are not responsible for the crime that has been committed. If we go into Afghanistan and start bombing Afghanistan, we are going to be killing thousands of people. 
who had nothing to do with this. Mm. That is not justice. That is mm. not, that cannot be a legitimate response to what has happened. You know, in our, he said, in our tears and our rage at what has, what just happened in New York and Washington, we have to, we have to be true to our values. We cannot betray them like that. You know, and and our values have to be justice and the rule of law. Yes, find out who was responsible, who was ultimately responsible, and 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 bring them into court and prosecute them to the full extent of the law. That was a, a horrific crime, absolutely. But it was not. It was not a military attack on the United States, and that's the point. There was no mm. country. That attacked us on September the 11th, and so, and that's what he was arguing. He said, "No, we have to, we have to stick to the rule of law, and prosecute those responsible, not mm. go to war over this." Absolutely, I agree. And it's interesting you say about the innocent who pay for it in the long run, because with the war in Ukraine and that that people are paying for it all over the world aren't they you know certainly here in england people are paying for it with everything cost of living going sky sky high and you know and and i'll always remember when our former prime minister i'm even embarrassed to call him the prime minister boris johnson um went over to ukraine and apparently advised Zelensky, the Ukrainian, to not negotiate. I mean, that's just to me, it's just backwards, isn't it? Yes, I mean the um, as we say in the book, you know, conflict resolution um, uh, experts understand very well that the easiest time to stop a war is at the very beginning. Um, as the longer a war goes on, the harder, the harder people's hearts are hardened to each other. The more each side is is just incensed about the atrocities committed by the other side, and um, it, and so it gradually becomes harder and harder to stop it. The war becomes entrenched, and and uh, um, and that was what was so dangerous about what Johnson and. American officials too did at that time. They, they, you know, the, the the Financial Times reported in March, only a month into the war, that Russia and Ukraine had the framework of a fifteen-point ceasefire and peace plan, mm. which which really which both sides in in which both sides achieved the you know their their sort of minimum requirements it was that the, the, they both made compromises but the results were acceptable to them both and um it involved ukraine ag- agreeing to become a neutral country agreeing not to join nato um it involved that um Russian speakers in Ukraine, of which there are uh, millions, um, being allowed to to speak Russian, to study in Russian, 
to to publish in Russian and and to go to school in Russian, um, and um, and the the you know the the sticky the stickiest part of part of it really, which they were still trying to work out, was well what to do about Crimea, which had basically defected to Russia in 2014 after the after there was a coup in Ukraine, which which the US supported. Um, and we can we can talk about that a bit more. But then also Donbass, Donbass, after the coup, um, the people of, of Donbass uh, formed what they called the Don the uh, Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics. They declared independence from Ukraine and they got support from Russian from Russia because the Ukraine tried to take them back by force and uh, Russia helped them to defend themselves. And um, so, so what was to be the, what was to be, how was that going to be resolved? And, and they were working on it. Uh, I, I mean, I think that from what the media report said, the, the, the basic idea was that they would not, result those immediately there would be some kind of transition period with some kind of internet maybe internationally supervised referenda and election yeah. so uh, but also i mean another option for donbass has been all along what was agreed to in 2015 in the minsk II peace agreement that was agreed on by by russia and ukraine and critically the, the People's Republics, and also uh, with Germany and France as, as mediators, and um, and also the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the OSCE, was involved, and they came in as monitors to monitor the ceasefire. They had 1,300 monitors and staff monitoring the ceasefire in Donbass from 2015 to 2022 for seven years, and the and the the cat over that time the cat the casualties came down year by year by year. Um, to really most you know about fourteen thousand people were killed in that civil war, but most of that the vast bulk of that was before the signing of the Minsk II Accord in February 2015. And but the but the reason for that and the way it worked was that in that agreement, Ukraine agreed to give uh, those those regions, the Donetsk and Luhansk provinces, uh, a new autonomous status within Ukraine. In other words, to keep them in Ukraine was willing to give them you know, a kind of autonomy, more self-rule, something something like, I guess the best way to compare it for a, a British audience is to say, as Wales and Scotland now have, you know, they're, they're able to govern their own internal affairs, even though they are still part of the United Kingdom, maybe yeah. not belong in the case of Scotland, but, <laughs> but um, you know, there we go. These, but, but that was an agreed to resolution the situation in eastern Ukraine, in Donbass. And it really broke down because Ukraine didn't follow through on those those provisions. But um, so um, I prob- if, I've probably gone on and gone 
quite a long no, way from whatever if, you first uh, asked me about. But I'd like uh, to ask you if if you if if say the British or the American government came to you and said, Nicholas, we'd like to you to help us uh, negotiate and put an end to this thing. What would you say to people like Putin and Biden and the English side of things? Well, actually, Biden himself has 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 said. First of all, he said, you know, the U.S. is not going to go to war with Russia, although it's very, very close to it now because they're they're so involved in helping the Ukrainians. They're helping to manage their operations. They're helping to provide intelligence to target their attacks. There, um, there are, you know, there are reports of 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 the U.S. and U.K. having special operations forces inside Ukraine and CIA personnel, presumably MI6 too. Uh, Russia just accused British special operations forces of being responsible for a merit, you know, naval drone attack on uh, Sevastopol and also of, of blowing up the, the Nord Stream pipeline. So, I mean, it, it's all coming very close to direct war between the US and UK and other Western countries and Russia. But um, you know, Biden has promised that he would not let it become war between the U.S. and Russia. And um, at times he has talked about the need for peace negotiations. In fact, he was challenged on this in June by the editorial board of The New York Times. They wrote an editorial saying the war in Iraq is getting complicated. This was the headline. Um, and the U.S. is not ready for it. And they really asked him point blank, what are we now trying to do? Yes, now we have persuaded the Ukrainians to abandon negotiations. What, you know, we now, do we now want them to try and fight to the, you know, f- fight until they've recovered every inch of Ukrainian soil or until they... Mm we totally defeat Russia or what, you know, what are we actually trying to do now? Um, And, and uh, about a week or two later, Biden actually responded to that with a letter to the New York times. And he said, we are arming Ukraine to fight the Russians, but also to put them in the strongest possible position at the negotiating table. So on the one hand, on the one hand, they're telling Ukraine not to negotiate. And on the other hand, they're admitting that, well, this has to end up at the negotiating table. And um, Medea and I wrote an article about the UN General Assembly. We, we watched the whole thing on, and read the transcripts. And 66 countries, rep, so the, rep, including the two largest countries in the world, India and China, and representing more than half the world's population, spoke out at the UN General Assembly, just pleading for diplomacy and peace negotiations to bring this war to an end. Because as as you said, you know, this is affecting the whole world. Yes, Britain is having a hard time. Europe is having a harder time than the US. The US has profited from this, you know, now building liquid natural gas terminals to send, um, you know, to send 
American fracked gas to, to places like Germany. But, yeah. but, the, but the, the worst effects are on the global south, poor countries that have been depending for years on, on wheat and maize and fertilizer and, and sunflower oil from two of the largest producers of all those things, which are Russia and Ukraine. And uh, they are really hurting. And some of those leaders from, from Africa speaking at the UN General Assembly, they were, you know, they, they were really decrying um, the, the West's insistence that the war had to go on because, because they, they're, you know, they're facing famine. They're already facing famine, many of those countries, because of climate, the climate crisis. And of course, this has diverted so much of the world's attention from the climate crisis, you know, to the war in Ukraine. And um, so, so the, there are these calls for peace, calls for negotiation. And in, in fact, um, as I told you before we came on the air, there is actually good news today. There's good news from Ukraine. And that's, you know, uh, when when did we last get good news from Ukraine? They've pulled out, is that the... the pulled out the troops from Kherson is that they've announced that they are pulling all the yeah. Russian troops out from Kherson there you know Kherson what what is, does that mean Sandiv uh Nicholas what does that mean sorry that's well I'll tell you that yeah I'll tell you the significance of that is that there was a report in an Italian newspaper a few days ago La Repubblica uh that and the Italians have been Probably of the large countries in Europe, they have been the most, um, their, their population is the most uh, anti, anti-war and, um, and their government has been, um, uh, it, you know, even before their election, and now they have a far-right uh, prime minister, but um, far-right president, I guess. Um, but what the newspaper said is that within NATO, they are now discussing, they have been discussing. So what does it mean for Ukraine to be in a strong enough position to go back to the negotiating table and, um, you know, and get, uh, you know, a, a strong agreement from their point of view so to negotiate strongly, to, to, to negotiate from a position of strength and, and, and really try and, and get the best agreement they can. And what, apparently, according to La Repubblica, um, what they settled on... Sorry. My family. Um, so what they have settled on is that if Ukraine could retake Kherson before, you know, before the winter because things are going to get tough in the winter. Things are going to get tough for the Europeans with, you know, lacking home gas gas to heat their homes. Things are going to get tough for the Ukrainians. Um, Russia just mobilized another 300,000 troops to center Ukraine. And um, Russia could go on an offensive in the winter and, and take more territory. And so, you know, if the goal is to actually get in a strong position to go to the negotiating table, this may be 
their best chance. And it seems that it, and it seems that the, the US is now supporting that. So Zelensky, let's just talk a, a little bit about Zelensky because um, he was elected in 2019 as a peace candidate. He is a Russian speaking Ukrainian. Um, who grew up in the south of, of Ukraine. Um, and he won s- over 70% in that election against the, the, the sitting president, Poroshenko, who had failed to implement the Minsk Accords and failed to bring peace to eastern Ukraine. And so here was Zelensky. Zelensky was an actor, a comedian. He played, he played. He played the, the president, president right. of Ukraine, right, yeah. in, a, in a sort of comedy on the TV. And yeah. it, was, it was a sort of hugely popular show. So here he was, an actor, a comedian, a celebrity. And in his comedy routine, you know, he made fun of the neo-Nazis in Ukraine. He made fun of Ukraine's subservience to the U.S., in, you know, since the coup. Wow. He, 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 he joked that the real president of Ukraine was not Poroshenko, but Barack Obama. That was one of his routines. Um, so, and here he was, he was elected with a massive, massive majority. I mean, who wins over 70% in a, in a general election in any country? Um, but with a mandate to actually implement the Minsk Accords and bring peace to the country. That's what people wanted from him. But he was so popular that, I mean, his, his majority extended practically across the, the entire country. I think, you know, the only, the, the only province where he, 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 he didn't get a majority, I believe, was, was um, Lviv, in the, which is the sort of the heartland of, the, of Svoboda, the neo-Nazi party, and the, and the heartland of, of Ukrainian nationalism. Um, and but, but across the country, he was he was so popular, and so, so and he so he had new meetings with the leaders of Donetsk and Luhansk and with Russia, you know, following the Minsk format, you know, with Germany and France mediating, and and um, and he came back to Ukraine and he set out to actually start pulling Ukrainian forces back from the ceasefire line in Donbass. Um, but as had happened before, the extreme right wing in, in Ukraine basically rose up against him. They had huge demonstrations across the country. They actually sent their militias to replace Ukrainian troops on the front line where, they were, where he was trying to pull them back. And Zelensky flew to um, the the ceasefire line in Luhansk, and he confronted Azov regiment um, troops and said, look, I am your president, and I am telling you to withdraw from the front line. And um, one of the right-wing leaders, the leader of a group called Right Sector, who were really the sort of shock troops of of the coup in 2014, um, they were led by a guy called Dmitry Yarosh, 
And Dmitry Yarosh went on TV and threatened Zelensky's life on national TV. Mm. He, he said, you know, you've said you're willing to, you know, lose politically, lose your your job as prime minister, you know, lose as president, sorry. And, um, you know, you're willing to sacrifice yourself, you know, in yeah. order to achieve peace. He said, you won't just lose your job and your position and your reputation. You will lose your life. You will end up hanging from a tree on the main street in Kiev. Wow. And um, so um, this is the kind of this. I mean, the after the coup, the voters in Ukraine had really rejected these extreme right wing parties, um, whereas before uh, before the coup, um, Svoboda, the neo-Nazi party based, you know, in, in Western Ukraine, had had actually won 10 percent of the, the vote in a um, in a parliamentary election after the coup. And then and they'd, after they'd see people had seen the violence of the coup. Their support in elections really dropped off. It was down to five percent in the next election after that. But these these extreme right wing, you know, white supremacist neo Nazi groups maintained a certain kind of of strength on the street and in their heartland in in Western Ukraine. And of course, because of the civil war, they had formed these militias that became National Guard battalions and ultimately regiments of the Ukrainian military. And the Azov regiment is is the one that is sort of best known and was probably the the largest. Um, They were not the only one. Um, And so the... um, so the the role of the extreme right, this is what we describe in the book, it went from sort of, you know, electoral politics and lead being one of the major parties opposing Yanukovych um, in the, the Maidan protests and then f- forming these militias that, that marched on, you know, the, 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 the robbed arms from armories and then and then marched on parliament and helped to overthrow the Yanukovych government. Um, They went from that to then losing electoral power, but form actually becoming military forces fighting in the civil war. And the Azov regiment really became a magnet for for white supremacist and and, um, extreme right-wing neo-Nazi groups around the world. Um, and the Sufan Center that investigates those kind of groups in the United States wrote um, reports on the um, the Azov Regiment and and how it was networking with all these groups around the world to to foster this uh, extreme right wing white supremacist ideology and there were people linked to the Azov Regiment who um, committed dreadful things. Brandon Tarrant, who attacked the mosque in New Zealand, um, had had contact with, with Asof. And, um, and there, were, um, there was a, a group that was part one of the groups organizing the, um, <coughs> the, the right-wing violent protests in Charlottesville, um, in which, in which uh, a counter 
protester was killed, deliberately run over with a car. And, you know, so, so, so as a result of, of, of what Azov was doing and its, its role in the international neo-Nazi movement, um, the U.S. Congress actually cut off uh, funding. It, it tried to, at least. It passed a, a law saying that no, none of the U.S. military aid could go to the Azov Regiment. Mm. Um, and that, uh, of course, you know, now with the billions of dollars flooding in, there's no, I don't think there's any attempt anymore to, you know, to, to, to you know, to try and exclude yeah. The, yeah. the weapons from from those extreme right wing forces. Um, well, it, it's the most affluent business, isn't it? Going at the moment, but um, Nicholas, I would absolutely love to talk to you all night because you, <laughs> you, no, because you just you're just so interesting, and you know we need more people like you on this planet. I believe that um, t- just to just to open people's eyes and really explain to people what is really going on and i know me and my mom and dad love you a lot and we really respect what you do and and i'm so happy you could come on my show astrovision but just because i've got a lot of um listeners and viewers in america just tell us uh briefly where where you're going to be doing book launches in in the states well i'm doing a couple here in miami and then I'm working with some people out in Missouri to go and do events in St. Louis and Kansas City and Columbia, probably, which is in between the two. Um, and um, we're also doing one. I'm doing one with Medea at our publisher's location in New York City on the 14th of December. Right. Um, Anything planned for Europe? <laughs> no, I'm afraid not. Not at this point, you know. We've sort of got our hands full here, but of course the book is available in Europe. Our yes. publisher has an outlet in London. It's available on Amazon.co.uk. And really, it is. I, I, as, I actually... as you say, I mean, we we could talk all night, but really, you know, here's <laughs> here's the rest Absolutely. of what I'd like to say. Which yeah, is I went on. Book. <laughs> I went on Amazon, you know, and and I saw your your book there ready. So if you want to, if you want to, I suggest you read nicholas's book because it's an incredible eye-opener to what's really going on because we don't really get the bigger picture from the western media they only feed us what we want to hear so please go on to amazon or wherever you buy your books and buy uh war in ukraine making sense of a senseless conflict by nicholas davies and his co-author but i i appreciate you i appreciate this moment and i appreciate what you're doing for everyone and i'm sending you lots of love and again thank you so much for being on the show thank you for having me asta it's been nice talking with you